0: Hello, welcome to the fourth episode of my podcast, In the Beginning There Was Philosophy. In this episode, I wish to discuss the notion of freedom – freedom in a political sense. Political theories about freedom go back to the Romans and the Greeks. Freedom is usually associated with democratic, open societies. There can be liberal, social-democratic versions of democracy, so there can also be republican ones. In this podcast, I want to talk about freedom from a republican point of view. Although republicanism has a long history, I will concentrate on modern forms of republicanism since the Enlightenment, but it is worth citing Cicero because he captured the essence of republicanism. Cicero said, though liberty is established by law, we must be vigilant, for liberty to enslave us is always present under that very liberty. Our constitution speaks of the general welfare of the people. Under that phrase, all sorts of excesses can be employed by lusting tyrants to make us bondsmen. Cicero mentions all the important ingredients of a republican theory. Liberty must be guaranteed by the rule of law. The rule of law is enshrined in a constitution and the Constitution must guard citizens against the excesses of rulers. But it is not enough to protect citizens against transgressions. The citizens must have control over the rulers. While these are some of the essential ingredients of republicanism, over the course of the centuries, republicans put different emphasis on this cluster of ideas. In the 13th and 14th century, republicanism flourished in the city-states of northern Italy. Its proponents emphasize freedom from external interference and the right to self-governance. Let me look at republican ideas during the Age of Enlightenment often called classical republicanism. Then we can move on to modern republicanism and see how their ideas differ from those of the Enlightenment philosophers. So first Classical republicanism. The philosophers of the Enlightenment period mostly lived under monarchic systems and often faced arbitrary rule. Absolute monarchism or even an enlightened form of monarchism was their problem situation. Not only did they witness cases of gross injustice and inequality amongst the citizens, they also felt the impact of monarchic power. They had to deal with censorship. For instance, on February the 6th, 1759, the French parliament banned, even burned copies of the famous encyclopedia edited by French philosopher Denis Diderot and his countryman, Jean-Baptiste Laurent d'Alembert. The parliamentarians also condemned and committed to fire Voltaire's Dictionnaire philosophique on the 13th of March, 1765 and Frederick William II, the successor to the enlightened Prussian king, Frederick the Great, censored the religious writings of the German philosopher Immanuel Kant in 1794. They could also be forced into exile or banned from entering capital cities, as happened to Descartes, Locke, Voltaire and Marx. The Enlightenment Republicans could see that monarchies led to class societies in which some members enjoyed more rights and greater privileges than others. They experienced life in such societies as a problem, not only for themselves, but also for the vast majority of ordinary citizens. Their efforts were directed towards finding solutions to the problem of living in unequal, unfree and unjust societies. Republicanism provided an answer to this problem situation. One of their preferred methods of developing a better conception of society and the state was the so-called social contract theory. Social contract theories are models not descriptions of real societies. Social contract theories ask themselves if we could make a fresh start, if we could rearrange society, How should we go about it? This approach led to a conception of the equality of citizens before the law, their freedom, guaranteed by the rule of law. Their plan for a constitution also demanded the separation of powers into executive, legislative and judicial powers. A further demand was a mixed government, which was to ensure that citizens had a say in the running of the country. The separation of powers implies that these three arms of governance had to be independent of each other. Some philosophers of that period, I'm thinking of Locke and Rousseau, only envisaged a separation of executive and legislative power. It was Montesquieu's achievement to have clearly separated the three branches of power, executive, legislative and judicial. The independence means that one branch of power cannot interfere with the other branches. So the executive cannot meddle in judiciary affairs. It is the hallmark of closed dictatorial societies that the separation of powers, if it exists, no longer maintains their independence. Thus judges become politicized and sentence people for political convictions which are opposed to the regime. All the Enlightenment Republicans called for a republican or civic constitution which made the people the sovereign of the state. Equality and freedom were to be guaranteed by the rule of law. The rule of law was enshrined in the constitution. The constitution must guarantee the basic rights like freedom of movement, of thought and of the press. This expresses the meaning of Kant's saying that freedom lies in the respect for the law. The question at that time was whether a civic constitution was compatible with a monarchy. Some philosophers thought so, but it had to be a constitutional monarchy. In this type of constitution the monarch has to respect the rule of parliament. The monarch is subject to the same laws as all other citizens. It seemed to reduce the monarch to a largely symbolic function as head of state. Still. Both Rousseau and Kant saw the disadvantage of such a type of monarchy. They worried about its hereditary nature, the question of succession, the unreliability of expertise of successive monarchs, and the false attributes which are attached to a monarchic position. The monarch is invested with wisdom, a sense of justice, even divinity. Citizens are expected to swear allegiance to the monarch. And all the contacts with the monarchs are governed by strict etiquette which serves to uphold the myth that an exceptional individual occupies the throne. Like Kant and Rousseau, Thomas Paine, one of the important proponents of modern republicanism, argued that positions in society should be awarded on the basis of ability and expertise, not on the basis of hereditary titles. Many of the Enlightenment philosophers also rejected titled nobility and inherited rights like seats in the upper house. These disadvantages of a monarchic system led some republicans like the French mathematician, philosopher and politician Condorcet and the political theorist Thomas Paine to a rejection of constitutional monarchy altogether. Condorcet for instance argued that the French king Louis XVI had betrayed the country during the Revolutionary period and that only a proper republic would guarantee human rights. The equality of the citizens was not compatible with monarchic rule. The sovereignty of the people cannot be ensured as long as executive power lies with the king. Note that Condorcet condemned the monarchy, not the monarch. That is, he rejected the system not its representative. The German historian Leopold von Ranke said in 1848 that up to the American Revolution the conviction had prevailed in Europe that monarchy best served the interest of the nation. Then the idea had spread that the nation should govern itself. When reviewing the compatibility of republicanism with a constitutional monarchy, we will need to consider not just political, but other aspects too. A king or queen, even in a constitutional monarchy, retains soft power, and this has cultural and social implications. But let us first conclude our discussion of Enlightenment republicanism. I have mentioned the separation of power into three branches and the importance of their independence. These features have to be enshrined in a civic constitution. What must also be enshrined is the equality and the freedom of the citizens before the law. The constitution must be formulated in such a way that it prevents all forms of abuse on the part of the rulers. As the Austrian-British philosopher Karl Popper stated, there must be an institutional control of the rulers. Classical republicanism often held that the notion of civic virtue and the common good were central to good government. The demand for civic virtue was meant to serve as an obstacle to corruption and abuse of power. Montesquieu, for instance, argues in his famous Esprit des Lois, 1748, that the sovereignty of the people is not enough in a republic. An additional requirement is the exercise of civic virtues, such as love of equality, honesty, moderation, and wisdom. Jean-Jacques Rousseau agreed. However, an appeal to morality, mores, is an appeal to the reliance on the character strength of individuals, citizens, and officials. Unfortunately, history has taught us that we cannot and should not rely on the character traits of citizens and rulers. In a similar fashion, the proponents of Italian republicanism contrasted the virtues of the ruler with the efficient functioning of institutions. Immanuel Kant therefore insisted on the importance of a civic constitution, both within and between nation-states. He emphasized that the rule of law must be dictated by reason, Modern republicanism therefore tends to define freedom as structural independence from arbitrary power of a master. Let's now turn to modern republicanism. Lights of continuity exist between the enlightenment and modern republicanism. The key element is the rule by the consent of the governed and the sovereignty of the people. The freedom of the citizens Guaranteed by the rule of law and the rejection of corrupt leaders are equally present. But there is less emphasis on civic virtues and more emphasis on the notion of liberty. Republican freedom is not just the absence of interference in the lives of citizens. Traditionally, this absence of external interference has been dubbed negative liberty. Open societies have created a sphere in which citizens can choose to live as they please. For instance, individuals are free to practice their religious beliefs, free to express their political opinions, free in their movements, as long as they respect the rights of others to exercise the same freedom. It is not the job of the government to tell the citizens what to believe. The French philosopher Diderot, chief editor of the Encyclopédie, wrote that if you can tear out the hair of a person who disagrees with you, you can also cut off his head, because there is no limit to injustice. John Locke and Voltaire expressed similar sentiments. Those who argued in favor of liberty as non-interference equally expressed a horror of what they call positive freedom, which they associated with totalitarian thinking. The political theorist Isaiah Berlin, who introduced this distinction in 1959, characterized positive freedom as self-mastery, control over one's lower instincts. This has the nefarious implication, according to Berlin, that self-mastery would lead an individual to submit to a greater good, a higher aim, and overriding common ideals, like nationalism. Such higher aims are not set by the individual, but by a group, a party, a nation, a society. In pursuit of positive freedom, the individual becomes subservient to the higher plan. Individuals sacrifice their own pursuit for the sake of the higher vision, Collective agencies claim to know what is best for society rather than individuals who must submit to some grander vision. Hence Berlin's fear of totalitarianism and his insistence on liberty as non-interference. Modern Republicans are as keen as liberals to ban despotism and totalitarianism. But for them liberty as non-interference is insufficient. They demand a more stringent notion of liberty. They introduce a thought experiment. Imagine a strict ruler, they say, like Frederick II of Prussia, who chooses not to interfere in the lives of the citizens as long as they obey. Or consider a totalitarian state in which citizens enjoy relative freedom in the economic and social spheres but have no political freedom. And compare these two scenarios with a despotic police state, which deprives citizens of basic liberties. On the non-interference view of freedom, we would have to admit that the citizens of the moderate enlightened state enjoy greater freedom than the citizens of the violent police state. In Kant's words, people are free to think and argue in Frederick's Prussia as long as they do not rebel. Modern Republicans are uncomfortable with this conception of freedom, for it seems that even in a more enlightened state, the freedom of the citizens is due to the benevolence of the ruler, but not thanks to fundamental constraints. Kant experienced it in his own person. Frederick's successor, Frederick William II, introduced censorship which prevented Kant from publishing his thoughts on religion. Modern Republicans define political freedom as non-domination or freedom from arbitrary power. They characterize freedom as structural independence. The freedom of citizens should not be dependent on the goodwill of a ruler like Frederick the Great. There should be constraints, barriers, mechanisms which guarantee the freedom of the citizens. Such constraints obviously have to be built into the very fabric of the Constitution as well as its laws and institutions. In connection with the separation of powers there's often talk of checks and balances. They serve to reduce the level of interference and the subjects dependence on an external power. Concerned citizens can take the government to court This is sometimes called contestatory democracy. The participation of citizens in governance is called mixed government. How then does republican freedom as non-domination, freedom from arbitrary power, differ from the liberal conception of freedom as non-interference? The difference between liberalism and republicanism in this respect is reflected in the amount of permissible state interference. On the liberal view, there should be as little interference as possible. On the republican view, a certain amount of interference in terms of laws and policies is justifiable as long as it is adopted in a non-arbitrary manner and serves the common good. It may even enhance freedom. Thus, for instance, interference of the government to protect and promote public health, impose speed limitations, Alcohol and smoking bans may restrict the actions of certain individuals, but the overall effect is beneficial for society. There are two more issues to discuss. One is the question of civil obedience. Why is there more obedience than disobedience? The second question is whether modern republicanism is compatible with constitutional monarchy. Let us first look at the question of republicanism and constitutional monarchy. We have already seen that the Enlightenment republicans were divided over this issue. Modern republicans stay mostly silent on this problem. How should we judge this question? Politically, republicanism is compatible with a constitutional monarchy since the monarch acts in accordance with the laws which are passed by parliament. Defenders of constitutional monarchy often point out that a monarch only exercises symbolic functions. The monarch stands for continuity and stability. But a monarch also stands for blind respect for traditions. But I agree with Condorcet, Kant and Rousseau that in other respects a constitutional monarchy is incompatible with republican ideals. First, The problem of a hereditary rule remains in a constitutional monarchy. Hereditary positions, not just of the monarch of the day, come with considerable privileges from which ordinary people are excluded. The monarch inherits the position not on the strength of competence and expertise, but due to traditional birthrights. Second, a monarch does not just cut ribbons. A monarch exercises soft power and hence retains an undemocratic influence over the policy makers. A monarch with soft power is not politically neutral. For instance in Britain, the monarch has regular, unminuted meetings with the prime minister and other senior politicians. He is also commander-in-chief of the British armed forces and immune from criminal prosecution and civil lawsuits. In theory, he can even dismiss a prime minister. Then, a constitutional monarchy has cultural and social implications in a country. A monarch is not alone. A monarchy comes with an extended family, the royal family, who all enjoy unearned privileges. This royal family distributes honours on a regular basis, which creates a hierarchy of titles and differential privileges granting the title holders access to societal resources from which the majority of the population is excluded. When Napoleon declared himself emperor, one of his first acts was to create a court around him with all the paraphernalia which we associate with monarchy, a hierarchy of titles and privileges. This is the worst social aspect of a monarchy. It produces and maintains a class society. Against all these disadvantages, the often quoted advantage of continuity and stability does not require a monarch. A safer way of securing these features is to have a republican constitution in which the monarch is replaced by an elected president who stands above the political parties and the government. Their remit is to represent the country. It is much more rational than the appeal to unjustified traditions. Such an arrangement binds citizens to a constitution, not a royal sovereign. The citizens swear allegiance to the ideals and principles of the constitution, not to the person of a monarch or a monarchic system. This aspect brings us to the final section. Why is there more obedience than disobedience? This very question was raised in the 16th century by a French political philosopher and lawyer whose name was Etienne de la Boisie. When de la Boisie was a student, he wrote a seminal discourse on voluntary servitude. Machiavelli asked, How should the rule of a prince be secured? Boisie asked, how a tyrannical ruler could be overthrown so that the freedom of individuals could be secured. With his work entitled Discourse of Voluntary Servitude written in 1549 and published in 1576, he foreshadowed 18th century political philosophy. Boissy wondered why people consent to their own enslavement? Why do they not rise up against tyrannical rule when liberty is the natural state of human beings. Boissy gave surprisingly modern answers. He discussed the techniques by which people are persuaded to accept their enslavement as he saw it. First, there is simple habit. Custom is the first reason for voluntary servitude. Second, rulers employ clever techniques to encourage consent. Following the Romans who used panem et circenses bread and games, they entertain the masses with festivities. Third, they create deliberate mystification. The ruler has divine status, special gifts, a grand vision, and the wisdom to implement it. A popular myth is also that the monarch has royal blood running through his veins. Rhetoric devices are employed. The ruler is the head of the nation, a father or mother figure. Furthermore, rulers surround themselves with acolytes, a hierarchy of associates, who all benefit from the despotic rule in exchange for unquestioned loyalty. This class of privileged citizens is often implicated in the crimes of the regime. Sadly, many of these techniques are still used today by rulers all over the world, not just by despotic rulers, but also by populist leaders. Fortunately, modern leaders cannot use all of these techniques because of the constitutional safeguards which are in place in open democratic societies. So why does civil obedience trump civil disobedience? First, there are psychological reasons at work. We are raised to be conformists during our formative years. We internalize the norms and values of society, as Freud would say. This is similar to Boise's customs and habits. Then, there are sociological reasons at work. We are rewarded for being conformists. We receive and enjoy the approval of our peers for behaving according to the customs, laws, norms and rules of society. Finally, there are economic reasons. Financial incentives encourage us to conform to the rules of society. Those who conform are rewarded, while those who refuse to conform face penalties, even ostracism. After having discussed the open society, power and the notion of liberty, I will devote the next episode to the question of social justice.